I have uh, hugged half a million people in 50 states and 42 countries in 19 years. It starts off as cycling, but it really sort of morphs into connecting with humanity. The bicycle for me was just a vehicle to get to people. Bicycling, it's a tool. It's a healthy tool. DOT is insisting on the same car-centric crap, you know, late 20th century drivers, Uber Alice <laughs> design, you know, in the middle of Los Angeles. And to me, it's depressing. It's like, if we can't favor a pedestrian in front of Union Station, I mean, where in the city can a pedestrian go to be safe? Every one of these kind of projects that is supposed to try and like, hey, let's do something different. Let's do something that actually prioritizes people on foot, people on bikes. City departments say, well, we're not used to doing that, so we don't want to change. And unless you have somebody in a leadership role who's steering that and saying, no, here's where we can be innovative. Here's where we have the ability to do something better. Unless you have that person, you're not going to get innovation. We are live today with uh, co-hosts, Don Ward, me, Nick Richard. And Clint Birdsong, who's the president of the Greater Cypress Park Neighborhood Council. Hey, Clint. Hi. Uh, we have you on today because you're doing something really amazing, which is you are hosting Slow Streets in Cypress Park. And it's a citywide thing, but you are the you are on the ground. You are the front lines, and we want to hear how it's going. What are well? How are you doing? Well, Slow Streets is, you know, a, a really nice program that the city put together right before uh, or right at the start of the um, pandemic. And it's I think it's a great program that allows folks to get out and, you know, walk their streets safely with fewer cars. And it's just a wonderful um, kind of idea. Um, and I think it's been going really well. We hear only positive feedback from folks in the community about how the um, signs that LA DOT's put up has reduced traffic, reduced noise from cars racing down the streets, you know, but just like with any program, it's not perfect. You know, the barricades are movable. And as a result, um, you know, there people still uh, drive through, um, but traffic is, is down um, in some of these areas and folks are able to get out and about and feel safer. Yeah. So what, there's, what streets yeah. are you guys on? What streets you guys do it on? You can only do them basically on what are residential streets uh, right now. And so we are on Aragon, uh, Jeffries, Huron, Idell, um, and uh, Romulo. So it's kind of a nice little path through what some folks call the flats area up into what gets close to Isabel Street. So um, getting close to the, to the Mount Washington area, but giving people kind of a path through, through the neighborhood. And we just got J-Rod here standing for Jennifer. Yep, Jennifer. Yep. Yes, I always forget to change my name. No, J-Rod's cool. So uh, are you on the Neighborhood Council or are you a volunteer for Slow Streets? Um, I think I'm a volunteer for Slow Streets, yes. Yeah, Jennifer's one of our main volunteers. She's uh, been, she was one of the, like you, Nick. I mean, Nick, you were one of the folks advocating for this. And our area and and Jennifer was the same. She sent some early messages trying to encourage us to to um, sponsor one of these these programs in Cypress Park. And so um, both of you have actually been really important volunteers for us, sharing information, putting up signs, uh, passing out flyers. 
all the hard work. Well, I haven't actually done much yet, actually. I'm about to uh, start, but... Uh, you gave us you gave us encouragement at the start. Absolutely. And um, so can you tell us a little bit about Cypress Park, first of all, so people can orient themselves, situate themselves and their mental landscape? Yeah, Cypress Park is um, at the corner. I'll use freeway since we're in LA. It's at the corner of the five and the 110. Um, really close to Dodger Stadium, right along the LA River. And it basically is um, a neighborhood of about 16,000 folks who live kind of in the, um, at the base of what some folks might know as Mount Washington. And is it the, we were just talking, Don was saying that this is technically the valley still, but oh, it's sort yeah. of around the corner from, I mean, I don't know. I was, I was making a joke to you, Nick. Oh, were you? I mean, I, if I'm you so, really look at the geology, you know, there are no mountains until you get to Mount Washington. So technically. And we're right in front of it. So. <laughs> yeah. So Huron runs parallel with Figueroa, right? Yes. Right at the, yep. Right there. So, yep. so you got kind of a, a connection between what, like Eagle Rock through Cypress Park to Mount Washington with these slow streets. Is that correct? Or? Well, here these are only very small segments. It only it's only two blocks of Huron Street between Avenue Twenty Six and Cypress Avenue. Mm. So this is an area that's pretty. There's some um, there's some like I don't know if you'd call it really density, but there's you know multi unit uh, buildings in that in this area, and so we wanted to give folks who live you know in an apartment a place to kind of get out and walk around uh, in their neighborhood, and so that's what this is perfect for. That's why we chose Huron Street. Now, did you guys run into any resistance from the council office on this, or was he pretty supportive? No, they were, uh, Councilmember Cedillo's office um, and his field team were very, very supportive, actually. They, um, we wrote them a letter early on, and they sent us some comments back saying we 100% support this, so that was nice. Um, awesome. You know, the only things that were sort of um, difficult um, or that the city doesn't really, you know, this is all happening in real time, like a program rolling out like this. And so there's not, there's not always like clear guidance shared, like when you're putting together your plan. So our original plan included many more streets and would have been a much um, longer like network of, of roads all throughout Cypress Park. Um, but the Department of Transportation told us that any street with an elevation change uh, wasn't really eligible for the program, which I don't, which really is, I, I kind of get the general, the idea behind it, especially for biking and different activities. But when you live on a hillside area, most of your folks who are walking around always are walking up and down elevation, you know, streets with elevation. So, it, you know, it's a little, and since this is meant to be a local program, it's kind of like, anyway, we would have really, we would have really, we would have had a really, um, I think a really nice program with a few more streets had we been able to include some streets with elevation changes like Jeffries and Roseview. Yeah, they, they always seem to come up with some kind of weird caveats and rules when they uh, do these, do projects like this, but hey, it sounds good. So yeah. are you guys looking to push for some kind of uh, infra infrastructure changes down the road? Are you guys sort of taking notes and and come, are you, it, will LADOT hear you out on anything? Like, have they offered to 
to uh, you know hear hear like feedback and on permanent changes in the future, or is this strictly temporary? Um, there's maybe two answers to that, but the the first one is that there is a council file that the city council is considering. It was introduced by council member Rue um, to make the slow streets program permanent. And that's not to say to make the streets we have designated right now permanently slow streets, but it's to say, let's create a permanent program that allows neighborhoods to designate some streets as local access only, like make that more, more, um, yeah, just like a normal part of what the city does. Um, and so that's under consideration uh, by both our neighborhood council and the um, city council. And so we're still kind of in conversations about that as a neighborhood council, but I think that there's definitely support throughout the city for making this program permanent. Right on. And then if, yeah, it, be yeah. no, if it becomes permanent, if it becomes permanent right now, it's signage. It's, uh -huh. uh, and then there's, there's a few issues with that, which maybe, Jennifer could talk about if if you've been out there, Jennifer. But then, when it becomes permanent, is it something different? What what is it? Be? It's not going to be the same, is it? Is it like concrete, stop sign? I think those are all ideas that are on the table. I, the council file, I think, is to like study making the pro. You know, what would the program look like? And so, I think those are things that the department would have, the Department of Transportation would have to consider. Because I agree that this barricade idea is not going to like. It's a. I mean, Jennifer can talk talk about it in detail about. You know, she's moved her fair share of, of barricades around, you know, people just move them. That's not quite the same. That's not, that's not the best way to restrict traffic and like make sure that, you know, streets are safe for people to walk around. So, yeah, I think there, there need to be, do need to be changes to make it um, more successful, more effective. Now that's, that's interesting too, because uh, like in Rue's district, there's a lot of back and forth, about this very topic for the last few years, actually, uh, regarding the Hollywood sign, where they they would put up these guerrilla barricades. Some of the people up in the Hollywood Hills saying local access only, and there was dispute about whether that was legal or not. So I could see Rue actually supporting this in a way to uh, kind of satiate the uh, Hollywood Hills residents who may want to do something like this. Which I totally, I mean, I totally get why they would do that. I mean, there's there's so much traffic up there and people drive kind of crazy up there, so. Well, this is for every every neighborhood. <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, whatever, whatever his, everybody, every politician is gonna do it for political reasons, right? Yeah, and people people want to have calm streets you know, to get out it, a lot of times, especially with, with, uh, that app, what is, what is the app called? Ways. Ways. Yeah. Um, with ways, you know, creating all these new routes, um, to avoid traffic, you're sending people down these neighborhoods and streets that are really residential. And, uh, <clears throat> this is kind of a way to, to, uh, beat that back you know because people should be able to cross the street and feel safe in a residential area i mean a commercial area as well but definitely in a residential area so jennifer, ways sort of destroyed that so jennifer can you talk about you know the what it's like you've been out there yeah i was just going to 
say before that I think that's the whole point of the pilot I think to feel people out and see what they think and improve on it before making any permanent changes to places and streets um, so I think that it's working out really well here in Cypress Park in terms of um, pedestrians and the people who it's meant for I think drivers are always going to be frustrated with um, you know barricades and things in the roadway because that is um, you know you have to pay more attention to it and so I think that I think it's really helpful to have that in a neighborhood especially when people can't do much um, my parents I haven't personally said that seen this but my parents have said that they've seen people playing outside and kicking the ball around and you know riding their skateboard my sister is learning how to ride uh, skateboard so she goes out um, in front of our house and practices so I think that it's um, serving its purpose really well but I think it's it's still you know, when I walk around, people are still frustrated and I can hear them being um, vocally frustrated. So I think that it's always going to be, you know, a tug of war between pedestrians and drivers. And I'm both, you know, I ride a bike and I walk and I drive and I, I, you become a different person when you drive sometimes. So um, I think it's, going to it's all about like behavior change and that's really difficult um yeah so you basically have again it's signage i mean it's uh some of it seems like it's just about education although if the signs are in the right place then drivers have to stop and think but they it seems like they're not always placed in a way to make to to, to force the issue Right. And there's always the issue with uh, like enforcement, right? Who's enforcing it and what's going to happen if you don't do what the sign says or if you can't see the sign in time or this is, I think it's sort of a new sign. So people aren't necessarily familiar with it too. So it's kind of like, can I go? Can I not go? And I like that it's local access because people can still, you know, drive through and do what they need to do. Um, it's just encouraging them to go more slowly. Um, so, yeah, sorry, for, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> I wonder if they could just, uh, you know, like those, those crosswalk signs um, that they, they put like sort of a marker in the middle of the street as you're approaching the crosswalk and uh, it, it's just it being there kind of makes you slow down because you have to, you know, make sure that you're not, um, you know, going to hit it. And it feels like that, like there's a slow streets program over by my office in Los Feliz and I drive through there and definitely just having an object there kind of makes me, slow down just instinctually so i wonder if like the permanent installation would just be something as simple as a a sign placed in the middle of the road at the beginning of the block um like one of those crosswalk 
type signs. I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about. I forget what they're called. Yeah, they're like the, they kind of like, they're like bouncy signs almost. Sometimes they kind of like, I don't know. But yeah, they're like right in the middle and they're like mounted yeah. to the street. Yeah. I think would be a great, that'd be a great thing for this program now even just because they're not, I don't think it's probably that much effort to mount at least some number of them, but the barricades are, you know, it's, 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 I think it, um you know, LAPD isn't enforcing this. So that's one aspect that like makes it a little, like people don't take it quite as seriously, which is probably a good thing. That's okay that LAPD is not enforcing every single like traffic program, I guess. But, um, but the, but yeah, the signs kind of being that flexible also makes people take it not that seriously. So if there is some kind of combination of maybe a mounted sign, one idea that, you know, we're trying to get is making sure the signs are in Spanish too, because so many folks in our neighborhood speak Spanish as their first language. And it's, you know, all the signs, there's lots of information on all the signs. If you've seen them, you know, they have information about social distancing, information about the slow streets program. Um, and it's all most, it's all in English. And so, you know, we're trying to get some of the signs to be um, uh, published in Spanish, as well as trying to get some of them mounted on stop signs on some of the narrow streets where the barricades are almost like too big, like they almost cause too much of a disruption to like local traffic that like you'd really just want a sign mounted on the you know corner of the street. Um, and so that's another idea in addition to maybe the crosswalk bouncy sign idea. I like how I just made up a name for them, the side crosswalk bouncy signs. I'm not, <laughs> even, sure. I'm not even sure they're that bouncy, but yeah, I still don't you know, have some give. what you're talking about, what you're referring to. Yeah, it's, you know, the, um, there's, there's the manual uniform traffic uh, control devices, something or other, MUTCD, that's like a state, a statewide guide to uh, traffic control devices. So, you know, it's like this particular uh, traffic control device, the barricade um, being temporary <clears throat> like if 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 we were to come back and say, hey, LEDOT, we want something permanent, we'd have to find something that's in the manual already, I think. And um, they have this these crosswalks, uh, at least around Los Feliz and other places I've seen it. But they they basically put it's it's like a sign, but it's floppy. Like if you're if you're not paying attention and you run into it. Um, it'll, it's not going to destroy your car. It might scratch it, but, uh, you know, it's, it's not a, um, a metal stake in the ground. It's like, it's got a, some kind of a hinge or something. But it's a pillar, like a, a type of pillar that's plasticky. Is yeah. That what and it, it, it's got some kind of a flex joint where, where it meets the ground so that it can be run over and not destroyed, I guess. My, does that sound right? I haven't seen these, uh, but yes, that's for, that's what I've seen. Yes, yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna so we're, but the volunteers are going around basically for the most part just reporting on the conditions of the signs and moving them back into place. And yep. you were talking, Clint, about some of the improvements we could make, like possibly paint that could you could spray on the ground to show where they go so we know where to put them back yep and that's an idea that we shared with dot haven't heard back yet i shared that with the other with um uh the group streets for all too one of some of their folks and they're also really interested in that idea i think that would help all across the city um maybe using the jennifer had it was jennifer's idea it's the uh surveying 
paint, you know, that's semi-permanent, but basically goes away eventually so that, you know, it wouldn't be there forever necessarily, but it'd be there long enough that we could know where the signs should go. Yeah. Because sometimes the signs are like tucked one inside the other. I've found that. Have you found that configuration? Yeah, like there's one. And, and we have some where we, we have some streets where we've put them on the edges of the street just because of the narrowness of the street and some streets where we've had, where we think one sign is good enough and some street, and there's normally two. Um, so, you know, and some of that's, you just, you learn over time and it'd be nice to just mark that. So we know, you know, what's the right configuration for the street. Although most of them are two by two in the center of the street. So it's not, there's a few exceptions in our neighborhood, but. But for, I mean, we should be positive about this. I mean, I think time we, we get kind of defeated and cynical if as uh, people on bikes and with cars and, you know, this is a hopeful thing. Yeah. This is, this is working Definitely. on some. Well, it's an equity project, too, because it's creating park space in places that don't have them. So, I mean, it's a, kind of a great project for the moment, too. Like, it's, it's um, you know, giving people who are stuck inside and stuck at home uh, a place to be active. And I love the story that Jennifer shared about her sister learning to skateboard out on the streets. I mean, what, an ama like, what a great thing the city's doing and that the neighborhood council's doing, you know, cre helping create that space. That's, that's awesome. Now, Jennifer's sister is uh, learning to skateboard on the slow yeah. streets? Yeah. Yeah, she got aboard, uh, I don't know, maybe a month ago, um, right when Slow Street started. So she was super excited to have more of an area to practice, you know. And it's always nice to ride on the road. I found even as a cyclist, you know, those roads are some of them compared to the bike lane. So it's a, it's a safe space for her to, to learn right now. Yeah, so you can practice taking the, the lane. <laughs> Next, we got to build a launch ramp and put it in the street. Yes, let's propose that to DOT, Flynn. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Uh, so now we're going to have, in a few minutes, we're going to have Yolanda, uh, and she's a neighborhood council member. Did you know that, Don? I did know that, but I forgot which is it. West Adams. West Adams. I was going to say that. Um, yeah, you know, I'd like to see a follow-up from a lot of the neighborhood councils where maybe we get a motion through each council that says, you know, motion to, you know, uh, study making these permanent in some way. Um, get something like that going. I guess uh, Streets for All sort of uh, coordinated a lot of neighborhood councils to pass motions, motion, motions for the slow streets program. Now we could do a, a follow up where we pass motions to make these things permanent, if possible. Yeah, this is kind of a foot in the door, right? Kind of a make make a coordinated effort across the city to uh, you know have everyone pass follow-up motions asking for it to be made permanent somehow. And you're talking to Streets for All, are you talking to other neighborhood councils about this at all? Or are they, they're doing the coordinating? You're talking to me? Yeah. Clint. Um, yeah, Streets for All is doing the, they're, they're basically doing that as far as, I mean, I'm, uh, they're sending emails, you know, asking folks, they're sending out model well, in neighborhood council talk, it's called a community impact statement where we file an official, you know, opinion about a, about a city council file. 
And so I think um, I should probably just tell you the name of the council file we're on this call, but, um, but uh, I think there's already a number of neighborhood councils who have filed, um, who have filed a, a, a motion uh, asking for the city council to adopt the permanent um, approach to slow streets. And there's 99 of these neighborhood councils in Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles. 89. There's or maybe 99. 92 yeah. now. Oh, there's 99 now. Wow. There's 99. I found that yeah, out. Yeah, so, so the, um, oh, sorry. The motion was introduced this week. Let me just tell you the council file so folks can look it up if they want to. The council file, um, if you go to the city, LA city clerk's website, you can look it up. It's 20-0838. Um, and yeah, I see here probably one, two, three, well, or probably five or six neighborhood councils who have already sent community impact statements saying that they support the, that council file. And what's the council file again, Clint? Is this what we were talking about or what you all were talking about? Yeah, yeah this is the motion to make permanent slow, to make a permanent slow streets network um, to create a, yeah, to create a program for making a permanent slow streets network. And that just means that the neighborhoods could apply to make theirs permanent, not that it's like a sweeping motion to make them permanent, or it is? No, it's just, this is just a motion that says we should, instead of having this kind of ad hoc program or this kind of like emergency program, we should have an official program that has, you know, a way mm -hmm. for neighborhoods to apply uh, to be a part of this. It doesn't have anything to do with the current uh, program as far as I can tell. You know, that's one, you know, could, it could be those streets, but it doesn't have to be. Is, is this, is this a, they're proposing to make the streets that are already slow streets permanent or they're proposing to make, okay, they're proposing to make anytime a neighborhood wants slow streets, they can The The council file is to report on the feasibility of developing a permanent network of slow streets to enable wider access to open spaces for all Angelinos. So it's just, it's basically like using this pilot program that we've been doing during the COVID-19 pandemic as a jumping off point to say, hey, let's make this, let's create a permanent version of this. Um, you know, with a permanent process, right? Yeah, like a permanent process to do this. Yeah, exactly. Like a permanent way to designate streets this way. Yeah. So we'll keep our eye on that. And when this motion comes before the council, that's when we do our public comment, right? Yes. All right. Thanks, thanks, Clint and Jennifer. Um, thanks for the update on this. Um, we're going to take it to Yolanda T. Davis Overstreet now, um, oh, wow. who is coming on the show. And uh, thanks, guys. We'll have you guys back, um, and we'll talk about you know when the motion uh, comes up. We'll we'll get the word out. Thanks again. Hi there. How's everybody? Hey, Yolanda. How hey, you doing? That's a good conversation. Um, yeah, that's to be continued. And uh, I know we're rolling right into our show because I can pick up on that. But um, we have Maya and David with us today. So how are you guys doing? Maya, David? Can you good. just take your... Awesome. You yes, welcome to LA. Both of you, at least uh, on the Zoom. David, you have your mic off? Yes, um, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, awesome. perfect. Awesome, cool. so thank you guys for coming. And, and before we dive into this, we have until about 7.10 today, is that correct? 
Don and Nick? Just I always check. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Time. Yep. Okay. All righty. All righty. Well, so first of all, thank you guys for just making the time to come out and, and talk with us. It's hot out here in LA. So uh, I've been, you know, like <laughs> just sweating, trying to get in front of a fan all day. Um, but welcome to Black Lives. Uh, we the people, Black Lives Rolling. And just before we start, I'd like to do a little introduction just in terms of um, really kind of you know, making it known that this is really an organic process that we started, uh, these interviews uh, that I started with Bike Talk and just reaching out to, you know, the awesome people that I've had the opportunity to meet actually over the past 10 years um, that are tapped into bicycling, um, sustainability, and healthy things that we need to do moving forward. What better time than now um, to really kind of unearth those relationships and to share uh, narratives. We have 30 minutes and I really look at this as kind of a um, ingredients, if you will. While we can't get into an hour conversation with you individually, um, your narratives matter. And it really is a part of the ingredients that I think um, we need to put out there moving forward um, because your lives and your narratives are a part of the solution, I believe, and moving forward on bikes and also in our community. So just to, to let folks know that are listening that uh, We the People Black Lives Rolling is a virtual conversation series uh, and that it will bring attention to not only Black Lives Bicycling, but also to uh, the issues uh, and, and the healing solutions around our social and political and economic challenges. Because it's basically we the people in Los Angeles, in America and globally that are faced with these challenges. Our goal is to tap into the multi-generational and less heard narratives, meaning we're, we're not on CNN and nor do we necessarily desire to be on CNN or any, any other network for that matter, but that we create new networks and that uh, basically we're able to talk about our experiences and then tapping into uh, the healing solutions to move forward into equity-based solutions, safety, sustainability, community, and compassion. So welcome for all those that are joining us uh, today and all those who will listen after today because I know I had a contact that's in South Africa that would love to hear this con actually conversation and she is into uh, tapping into uh, bicycling uh, internationally, but it's 3 a.m. there. So she'll listen to it uh, later on today. So uh, who we have with us today is Maya Henderson. Um, and I actually met Maya, um, I'm not sure if it, it hasn't been a year, Maya, or no, I don't think it's been a whole year. <laughs> I know, <laughs> this time is like going, you know, I'm, I'm losing track of time, but basically Maya is the former director of sustainability at Kilroy Realty Corporation. Uh, she's also recognized as the North American leader an office in the Office of Sustainability by Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. Um, Maya currently resides in, and can you pronounce the name of this location? Where uh, you yeah, so I'm in Aotearoa, which is the indigenous name of New Zealand. So okay. I like that, yeah. Okay, I thought I would give that one to you. Um, and where <laughs> she is exploring um, opportunities to further her personal and professional passion of equitable and sustainable development. Welcome, Maya. Thank uh, you also, so we have uh, David Hell Sylvester. I met David uh, back in 2000, was it 12? 
David, around Something there? like that. Yeah, it's been a minute. <laughs> right, right, right. So we go yeah. from a year to, yeah. And yeah. Um, and that was the beginning days of, of gathering stories with Ride and Living Color and found out that David was riding his bike all over the world. And we had an opportunity because he was stopping through L.A. that we had an interventive conversation, I call it, that was he actually came by my house in my neighborhood and we, uh, we chatted and it, and it was a real uh, conversation about his amazing um, journey around the world and really what triggered him to even do that in the first place. So I think David, there's so much just from a standpoint of David as a global cyclist, um, he's an author, he's a trainer and first and foremost, a dreamer. Um, he has cycled all over the world and is now spreading his story anywhere he can. Um, I have actually shared both Maya and David's website links, um, which some of you might have had an opportunity to look at um, before uh, this evening. But tonight, we're just going to get to know them a little bit more and find out kind of what got them on this road anyway, you know, and what triggered them as Black Lives um, to step out and be concerned about the outdoors, um, about community, um, and making that connection on bikes because bikes moves us around in that connection, whether it was a good experience or not so good experience, and how do we see, basically, and how do they see moving forward on bikes. So we're going to start with Maya uh, from the standpoint of, we, I got your, your statement about bike riding, and I'm so sorry you had that, <laughs> this no. experience, um, you know, as a young person, um, but I get it in L.A. So could you talk a little bit about just kind of, you know, that, but also any thoughts that you just have, you know, on your mind actually right now in this most unpredictable time with the COVID-19? And I think just everything that we talk about is at that intersection right now. Yeah, absolutely. So just to, yeah, the background on my, like, bike history um, you know, I've been very fortunate that I grew up, I grew up in LA, but I grew up largely as a, as a child in the San Fernando Valley, which is a bit different from like South LA and other, you know, more known communities. Um, growing up, I was, you know, the, I was one of very few black families in my neighborhood. And um, so I was fortunate enough that my parents uh, were very intentional and thoughtful about where they raised us and they wanted us to be in a community where we could have those experiences, be outside and, and, and feel comfortable being outside in our environment. So there was, um, I remember my dad teaching me how to ride a bike, you know, okay. growing up with my siblings, playing outside, we had a backyard, we had spaces where we could be outside, engage with the environment. I remember clearly my dad taking me fishing and my mom, she's not the most outdoorsy person, but she didn't stop me from going outside. Yeah. Um, but it, it was at a certain point when we weren't doing it as a family, right? When we weren't doing it after school or collectively on the weekends, that it was it it didn't feel like something I could get up and go and do. It didn't feel like it was something that one as a young black girl I was able to take myself outside of <laughs> of my home yeah. on my own and, and ride this neighborhood. Um, it wasn't something uh, that was highly encouraged for me to do. Wow. Um, and it's also something you just, uh, you know, I, I think I, I, I'm able to make that connection more now, but the trauma and the terror that comes along with knowing how you're seen in, in, in your community yes. um, or by folks who are not in, in your community, um, 
you, you pick up on that on a very early age. So I knew that it was dangerous for me to go to certain neighborhoods or go certain places without my parents or without my siblings. So it wasn't, again, a place where I got on my bike on my own and just started riding around the whole place. Right. I wasn't that brave at the time. Right, um, right. Just kind of that, yes. I guess, that, that, that no, mindset or that it. privilege that, yes. you know, I'm good wherever I am. Yes. That I privilege yeah. of I'm good, right? Of like, yeah. it's okay for me to just be. And that, that wasn't, you know, not just in the banking sense, but generally, you know, outside of the home, that was something, you know, I was very cognizant of whether or not I was able to articulate in the right way. You know, I was very, always very aware of my surroundings, who, who was around me, what I could do, what I couldn't do. I was always managing my actions for other people's benefit. Does that make sense? Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how would you say you were at that when you were actually even in that mindset of managing you know, honestly, I think always. Like, I think, I think I'm at a point now where I'm able to like recognize it and articulate it. But I think I've always been, um, I've always modulated my interactions with how I know people, uh, how, how I can move through certain spaces, right? Again, I grew mm -hmm. up in, in a community where I was um, one of very few Black people. And I was fortunate that my parents made sure that they not only um, surrounded us with, uh, so both my parents are transplants to LA. Me and my siblings were born and raised in LA, but they both came from other places. So I didn't grow up with extended family. They created an extended family for me in LA, but it's, they, I, they didn't see them every day. It wasn't the same with the experiences my right. cousins had growing up with that family around all time, being able to just get up and go out and run the neighborhood. Like that wasn't, right. that wasn't necessarily my childhood experience. And um, it was it wasn't a bad experience, but it wasn't it wasn't that freedom to go out and just explore, uh, especially walking, biking without again being with someone, being with an adult. Um, so there was that kind of stay home, stay safe mentality. And yes. again, my exploration of the outdoors was with my family unit or with you know friends or family. It was always very uh, regulated. Yeah, 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 I definitely can hear that. Um, and. I think that actually speaks to why we have so many black lives that, um, you know, that aren't out on bikes, number one, um, and, and that it's not a common conversation that we have uh, with our friends and our family, um, because not everybody did it um, yeah. for, I think, a lot of the reasons that you're mentioning. And, yeah. um, and now you're in New Zealand, um, yeah. and I, I definitely want to hear about kind of your transition from America and in particular South LA um, into this kind of international um, move and transition um, you've made. Um, but I'm going to go to David in terms of kind of, David, how did you, you know, even get on a bike, I, I would say too, and, and, and then make this decision that you're just going to ride around the world one day? Um, well, my story is that, you know, I guess I, I was always, uh, I don't know, super foolish or overconfident or whatever. I never felt fear about going anywhere uh, ever uh, or trepidation about anything. And, you know, my story is simply that my friend was killed on September 11th and I rode my bicycle across the United States to honor him in 2002. And uh, what I found is that a lot of people were really inspired by what I did and started reaching out to me to say that they were inspired. So I wanted to do more. So I entered myself in a bicycle race that took me across Africa uh, and bicycled from Cairo to Cape Town. And again, more people said they were inspired by what I did. So I uh, entered myself in another bike race that went across Asia from Istanbul to Beijing. Uh, 
Uh, and then I, when I returned, I wrote an article for ESPN that got a couple million hits and I felt if a couple million people were inspired, I should do more. So I rode my bicycle across North America again, uh, stopping once a week and volunteering a day at different charities. I wrote a book on my travels and to celebrate writing a book. I bicycled half the United States. Um, and uh, then I bicycled Australia from Sydney to Melbourne. And um, as my story has gone on and as I have uh, cycled all over, what I found is that uh, people, um, you know, I'm a natural hugger and high fiver. And uh, what I found is that people were really getting a lot out of my story, not just out of my story, but also just hugging me and, you know, and high fiving mm -hmm. them and just my energy. And so uh, I was supposed to bike the United States again, but got an ear infection and my equilibrium was messed up, so I couldn't bike. Uh, but I still drove across the United States. And uh, what I found is that, you know, my story had really pivoted from cycling. The, the important part of my story was not the cycling. The important part was the hugs and high fives and sort of the bonding within humanity. Uh, and so it has, since then, I have done a couple of different trips where I drove the continental 48 states in 77 days and I hugged 14,000 people. And, you know, fast forwarding up to today, I am sitting at, I have uh, hugged half a million people in 50 states and 42 countries in 19 years. And so my story is really, it starts off as cycling, but it really sort of morphs into just humanity uh, and just connecting with humanity. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I just, you know, the, the bicycle for me was just a vehicle to get to get to people and to uh, to get attention, uh, a moment to, of attention from people. And then I just sit down and started talking about my story uh, and about other people's stories. And now what happens is, you know, people want to talk about all the people that I have hugged and high five and the life lessons that I've had. So, you know, my story has sort of, like I said, it started, its roots are definitely in cycling, but have blossomed into something so much more and just, you know, about humanity. Well, I mean, I'm, I think when you talk about humanity and just kind of the energy and I, from both of you and, and a lot of people I meet, you know, I really remember those that have an energy that really is a, um, a display of the type of humanity and direction that we want to go. So I think, you know, that's, that's who I'm calling first to even have these conversations on We the People, Black Lives Rolling. I would say that, um, you know, bicycling as a tool, it's a tool. And so I, I think, you know, it's a healthy tool. And I, and I hear your story. And at the same time, I hear that bicycling um, really evolved you into uh, basically having the connection and even more evolved stories as you're sharing. Um, David, and I, I think we also have to recognize the stories of, of how, uh, you know, people like what Maya had to experience where she had to regulate um, her, her, where she even rode and not to be able to feel that, that freedom actually does hinder the experience of, of bike riding and, and what it can offer you, I think, just from a standpoint of seeing open spaces and, and being able to evolve more into those spaces because I, for me, it helped me to actually care about land more, you know, and it helped me actually to make 
as David was saying, that connection to so many other lives. Um, and what, what's like, have you been on a bike in, in New Zealand? Um, I know, and, and I, I really want you to talk about just what as a black woman and as a black life, because I think the work of sustainability ties into the conversation of bicycling. It ties into the conversation of being able to be in all these great outdoor spaces that I see on David's website. You know, it ties into the slow um, streets that um, the conversation that just took place um, before we came on. And can you talk about that and tell us, you know, as a black woman, um, probably one of the few black women that basically has this conversation and also connects it to our lives. Yeah. Um, so I got into sustainability very similar to why Dave went across the world is the humanity of it. Like I, I, I deeply value um, my community, the people who are part of it, all of the different cultures that are here on this planet, as well as, well as the actual environment that supports us and our people. And so I, uh, when I realized I wasn't going to be a veterinarian because I didn't want to cut anything up, I, I, <laughs> environmental science is the thing that, that motivated me. And it was really when I was able to look at the intersection of sectionality of things where I could really see, okay, not only do we need to understand how things physically work, right? The hard science of it, the biology, the chemistry, whatever it is, but we really need a firm grasp of the social science of things, right? What motivates people? Why do people behave the way they do? Why do animals do? All of that needed to come together and an under, firm understanding of that um, was necessary for me to like help move things in the right direction. And so um, how, oh, how did I get to New Zealand? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, my, my environmental science thing and then I found myself in the built environment in order to start to um, hopefully make change in the right direction of not only being more better stewards, better stewards of the environment as human beings, um, but really start to um, ideally change the communities we grew up in. Um, I wanted to be a part of making the community that um, other folks grew up in, um, more sustainable, but also more connected. I feel like part of what we do in the built environment is break things up and we make it um, unsafe um, in a lot of ways. And um, I, I wanted to be a part of that kind of healing that needs to happen in the built environment in order to make sure that folks felt um, they could live their full and complete lives, right? And a big piece of that is, of course, having better access to not only open space, green space, um, but feeling as though they can live uh, live an active life and a big part of that is walking and biking and so one of the things I recognize again I kind of put biking aside for a while after childhood when you know again life became very car centric and um, uh, I, remember, <laughs> uh, I remember coming back I went to school in Riverside which is also not the for my eyes at the time was not super bike friendly, but coming back to LA and wanting to get back into bike again, I'm an environmental science student. I want to do everything I can to make the environment better, but I'm constantly driving I'm in my car all the time. And you just realize the toll it takes on both your body. Um, because when I was an undergrad, I was walking all the time. When I uh, left undergrad, I was driving all the time. And I felt like I had aged 10 years just by sitting in my car for so long. Um, so I wanted, I wanted to be able to walk again. I wanted to be able to bike again. And um, given where I was working and how I was living, biking just wasn't feasible because we didn't have streets that were designed for it. Um, we didn't have streets that I felt safe to ride on those long distances. And also, so I would say a big cost 
of entry is becoming equipped and ready to bike. I had to get like my seats or I, you know, like once I started yeah, adding all those correct. things, I was like, I, I, I'm not ready for biking either in terms of biking. <laughs> I, I took a, a kind of a sustained break from biking. The only biking I did back in LA was when I would go to beach cities like Venice or Santa Monica where there were, you know, clear lanes for it. And it was just, you pick up a bike and go. You didn't need all the gear and equipment. Um, it was it was enjoyable there. And the ideal of biking as a, a regular mode of transportation just seemed like too much. It seemed like too much work, too much, too high a cost to get into. I totally, um, you know. yeah. I totally yeah. hear you on that. And I think those are things that are a part of sustainability. And that's why I'm so happy you're, you know, in this work uh, from both perspectives, both from your lifestyle and the professional work you do, because we need to figure out how we can um, get more black and brown lives for that matter, um, or, um, you know, just educated on, and, and also that we can set our communities up um, to be more walkable and, uh, I mean, more rideable and walkable for that matter. Um, so that's really what we're talking about in terms of creating more equitable communities. You know, our communities, it's, it's even a hard time for our um, communities of color to have the conversation about slow streets because they're not on a bike, they're, their bike, they don't own a bike, um, and the streets are not set up to ride a bike or even walk. Um, David, are you, uh, just from a standpoint of what you've seen on an international level, um, both where you live, are you, are you still in Philadelphia? I am still in Philadelphia, yes. Okay, and then also your travels. Um, can you kind of tie into the, what we're talking about here from, from an equity standpoint? Um, did folks want to get on the bike with you and ride or did they have bikes or, you know, kind of what um, was your in connection? Many, in, yeah. in many of the countries that I biked through, uh, throughout yeah. Africa and Asia, a lot of people had bikes, uh, you know, and bikes of varying qualities uh, and stuff like that. You know, what I always was taken with was just how, um, you know, how people could just jerry-rig stuff. I mean, I was just really <laughs> amazed, amazed by that. How a guy, I have some pictures of a, you know, a guy basically put together his own tandem bicycle with kind of two bike frames and a handmade weld and a lot of rubber and stuff like that. And I was just like, how, how did you, you know, how did you wow. do that? So, so I was always taken with, taken with that. And, you know, for me, it's just, you know, if the desire is there, then, then you figure it out. Um, and so it was, you know, I was always just taken with just the, the, the ingenuity and uh, that, that people had uh, to, to just make whatever dreams they wanted, you know, to happen. Mm. If that was just a ride across some place uh, or whatever. And so, you know, were they the best bikes in the world? No, not at all. Were they necessarily mm -hmm. even the safest bikes? No, not at all. But they were bikes and they were they were uh, plentiful um, in a lot of cities, uh, definitely in Asia, uh, there would be bike uh, traffic jams, which is something I had never seen before uh, wow. throughout, uh, yes, throughout I seen that. Uh, China, throughout uh, definitely as we got to uh, central China, uh, making my way closer to Beijing uh, throughout uh, some big cities in Kyrgyzstan and uh, Uzbekistan, there were a lot of uh, a lot of bikes and stuff like that. And it was a mixture of not just bicycles, but mopeds and motorcycles and all that stuff. But a lot of two wheeled vehicles 
that are just out there. And, uh, and so I was just really just, I was just blown away by, like I said, just how much traffic was out there just with two wheeled vehicles. So it's, um, and, um, you know, throughout a lot of the countries that I went through. So I've, I've always been shocked by that. Yeah, yeah. And it would, I, I mean, I think that's, you know, what we're talking about in the U.S. Um, to try to work to structure our city so that we actually do have more bike mobility um, and possibly even a little bike traffic versus car traffic. And um, can you see that? Can you envision that happening in America, so, in L.A.? I, mean, I, I guess <laughs> I could, but I also, I'm, I'm old, so... You yeah. know, I grew up when there were no bike lanes, there was no helmets, yeah. law, helmet laws or whatever. So I kind of just grew up with, you know, you just do it, you know, that's mm -hmm. kind of just, and that was just my attitude, just do it, just, mm -hmm. you know, and then just figure it out. So I was never, um, you know, if there's bike lanes, there's great, but if there isn't, that's great too. You can't stop me. You. That was all, that was always my attitude. Like you just, okay. you, you can't stop me. So it You're would renegade. be nice. You're a renegade. Yeah, uh, so we're talking to a renegade. Now. De definitely, definitely <laughs> right, now. Right, so, right, right, right. Yeah, right. so I am, uh, yeah, I'm just a just do it kind of guy. Yeah, so. no, I hear you. I hear you mm -hmm. on the just do it. Um, you know, we got to figure out how to get more folks to just do it and also how to be safe um, and how to save our planet. You know, I, I think of, I have grown actually over these past 11 years, or not 11 years, actually, it's been more like nine years um, and kind of from this grassroots work that I've done um, to have the opportunity even at this stage in my life to actually um, get trained by uh, some of the best and amazing uh, community leaders uh, here in California and also mm -hmm. just on a national level when we talk about the planet and we talk about climate change and so I'm looking at it also from a planetary standpoint and I feel you know I feel it I feel the the need that you know, as, as bikers, we are, we actually can play a role just from our, our experience that we already know how cool this is and what a difference it makes and what we've been able to see or what we still can see. Because Maya still has a lot of years ahead of her to, you know, to, to step up and basically, you know, get on this bike and I guess um, figure out how to tie it in to uh, make it work within our it's educate our communities of color, because that's really what we're focusing in on this conversation. Um, because we play a big role also, we should play a big role in saving our planet. But until we're included in the conversation, until we're sitting at the tables, um, you know, we won't be playing those roles. And I know a lot of amazing people are, are working on outdoor, the great outdoors effort, um, which I'm trying to get them on this show too. Um, and so that we can continue this because really what, what's happening here is we're just getting the ingredients. So you guys are part of the ingredients that I see and moving forward and figuring out how we can grow this narrative. You know, we're just starting in this 30 minutes now, but I really want to see this expand and that we are able to continue this. So um, just based on really kind of where you are in your life now, um, David, how do you, are you getting back on a bike? Are you riding anywhere? Oh, yeah. This I mean, world? I'm definitely, <laughs> I, I <laughs> um, I'm riding around the city and stuff like that. I, mm -hmm. look, Lord knows, Lord knows when any of us are going to travel again. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I'm definitely itching to travel. And uh, I had some plans, some big plans 
to uh, do one giant hug the world trip for the 20th anniversary of uh, September 11th next year. But like I said, I don't know. I don't we know don't what's going to come. Correct. I don't know what's going to come of those plans uh, in this time of COVID. I mean, I have some some ideas for a plan B for all of that, but you know, we'll we'll see. Um, it's mm-hmm. really, you know, but yeah, right now I'm just biking around town. Okay. Uh, and, I hear uh, you. And, and and that's that's all I can do. Uh-huh. You know, it's uh, I wish I could uh, bike bike across the United States again, or bike across another uh, continent uh, or some countries again. But I just I just can't. We're all kind of sidelined right now, which yeah. kind of just really sucks. What kind of bike are you on these days? Um, I have a Surly single speed, uh, which is just sort of my my training bicycle. Uh, it's a it's a hard gear, so regardless of where I go, I'm working. <laughs> So okay. I'm working hard. Okay. So it's, um, and I also have a, uh, a specialized stump jumper, mountain bike, and uh, another specialized touring bike. Nice. So it's, uh, yeah, so it's, um, and I have pieces of other bikes. So yeah, I have like five <laughs> bikes. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, Maya, what, what, what is it looking like for you? How do you see us moving forward? What are some of your uh plans um and and kind of how are you seeing making that connection i guess as you move in space and outdoors you know being a girl from um south la or southern california uh rather and being in new zealand how are you envisioning moving forward and how does the bike play a role and how does this and how do you make that connection Oh, I, so I see things changing kind of two sides. We need the data to where like, you know, forget we're already there. We're going to just get to the streets anyway. We need we need that energy. We need that movement. And we need a lot of people to do that, to create that pressure that's needed to do what I do is work with folks in policy, work with folks in planning, work with folks who are actually drafting up uh, what <laughs> the vision for yes. our communities to come. Um, and if we don't have that, we don't have that pressure on both sides. We're not going to get to a place where we can really see our streets change. And and really, you know, my ma- major motivation in seeing our street change is not only so that individuals can live healthier, more complete lives, right? They have uh, um, more direct access to their community, more direct access to the environmental resources in our community by walking and biking as opposed to using your car and vehicle. Um, but also what comes of that is, right, just a healthier life for everybody, for our environment. We cut down our carbon emissions. Um, we cut down the waste that we produce um, around cars and, and so many other things. So it really needs to be that, you know, that, in, that imperfect movement to say, okay, let's just get on our bikes. Let's just get outside, which is, you know, one of the reasons yeah. Cyclovia was Mitigate such a big deal approach. for me. Like, I would make an effort to go to every Cyclovia I could, no matter where it was in the city, right? Because the, having that moment of where you could visualize and realize what the streets would look like to be open to white walking, biking, all other modes of transportation as opposed to cars. We need we need more people to, to have tangible connections to what that really looks like um, and enjoy what that really looks like. Right. So that when folks are coming in on the policy side of things, that when folks who, who have right now the authority and the power to design what our communities look like, are taking that into consideration and not only doing the planning of, okay, how do I make my building a little bit more energy efficient, which is, yes, going to cut down carbon emissions, but how do I make my neighborhood overall more car friendly, more active, more more efficient for the actual users of those communities so that we are seeing real gains 
around sustainability and around human health and around social um, right. social justice. Right, right. No, and you're exactly right. And I think in, in, in wrapping up our conversation, I think actually it, it, it kind of, it is strategic, I think, for me when I bring in um, the guests to have the conversation, but it always clicks. It always is like, and I think that's, that's also just a part of being open to narratives that you can see how we are all a part of the puzzle and how our narratives all play a role in helping us to envision how we can move for further in the conversation, actually on bikes and in terms of communities that need to be improved upon and or where things are fragmented. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, I hear what David's saying because part of me is that renegade. A lot of the work that I do is renegade. I've been around for a while too. Um, and also, uh, but I've also had the opportunity and blessed you know, with the um, character and the characteristic of being able to take in new information and to be able to say, hey, I wanna learn from you that you know, I don't know it all and I love learning new things. And so basically, um, I, and I, so basically that's what's on both sides of me you know, um, here in terms of you guys' visions. And, but at the same time, I also see here you, Maya, speaking about what's to come and the planning that is to come in terms of how we, what is sustainability and how can we maybe even redefine so who made up the word sustainability? Like, I mean, was it, did it even <laughs> apply? Did it even apply to us, you know? Um, and did it apply to our communities and, and Black lives? Um, and so I think the only way it will apply to Black lives or brown lives is that we are in that conversation. And so um, here in the community I live in, West Adams, um, I'm just trying to get the trash up off the streets you know, so that I could bike ride, (laughs) you know, like um, I'm contacting the neighborhood, speaking of neighborhood councils, I'm contacting the neighborhood councils and saying, hey, you know, this sanitation uh, here in this neighborhood is terrible, which is probably the case um, across the country. Clean it up. You know, how how are we going to, so that's that renegade part of me, you know, that, um, that David is talking about. And sure enough, we have to be that squeaky wheel, both off the bike and on the bike, because the trash is is starting to get cleaned up. Um, we are having conversations about um, bike lanes um, for safety, so that basically less. We had 50 uh, people that have been killed, I believe, over the past. Um, I think since I can't quote the date, but I would say at least it's a period of seven years, roughly. And so that's why we're trying to get better pedestrian um, infrastructure in this historically African-American neighborhood. We are diverse, but we we always have been diverse, but now we're under gentrification in some cases. And in some cases, it's actually development that has been needed. So in in closing, I would just um, ask you guys kind of like in a sentence, what is your advice for uh, those that are listening that are on bikes, that are Black lives, that are renegades, that are visionaries and planners? What is the sentence you can share or two that you can share with us to move forward? We'll start with um, David, the renegade. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'll just stick with just, just do it. I mean, yes. it is, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, just just do it. And there's nothing that, that can stop you. And I would say that anybody that finds themselves uh, being thwarted uh, in any way, um, give me a call and let's figure a way around it. My number is 267-252-1974. And uh, 
I have ridden a bicycle all over the planet. I've done a lot of things that a lot of people uh, didn't think that I could do or should do. And, uh, and chances are, if you want to get your dream or whatever moving forward, then uh, I'm willing to talk to you and do what I can to help you help you make it forward. So 267-252-1974 and, and let's do it. Yes, it. I love it. Thank you so much, David. And mm -hmm. Maya, Thank what you. do you have to share with us? Um, yes. I would just say, like, find, find your space in the movement. I think oftentimes people feel like the way to get involved in the movement is one specific way that they've been told or seen, you know, like they, they have to follow this path. I think, I think there's space for everyone to do uh, what comes more naturally to them, right? Some people are more risk averse. Some people are dated, so we need lots of data. Uh, but yeah. I think there there's a way for everybody to be a part of a movement and to see their community um, and see and see this movement around biking and mobility and, and, and environmental justice move forward. So really find out what um, motivates you and like lean into that, I would say. Yeah, I, I will yeah. say one thing just mm -hmm. real quick. Maya, is it all right if I get your email and just oh, and email you? Because I have a, a bunch of questions for you. And so yes, I just, definitely. Right, so Yolanda, well, just all right, perfect. Yeah, well, um, well, yeah. And then so I, I, I think you, you, what you guys have shared is great. I see the next guest are up and ready to go. So I would okay. just say my, uh, my final word here um, is, again, thank you, David and Maya, for the wonderful work that you're continuing to do. You guys inspire me continue to inspire me. I would say my last word, influenced by what David was saying, which was find your bike. Um, I found my bike years ago. And when, I, when, when you say find your bike, it's like find your space, you know, right. find, find, find your groove and don't worry about it. But one thing is for sure, um, just from a standpoint of this conversation is that um, we all have our unique place and that there is no dominion. And so right. just enjoy it and go for it. And thank you again, um, Nick and Don, for uh, this opportunity to do our third uh, show of We the People, Black Lives Rolling. Well, and stay around if you, if you can, all of you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh -huh. And now uh, I invited Aram. Is that you, Aram? That's me. Yeah. Sorry. It's uh, my wife's account, I guess. So that's why it's got a different name. But uh, hi, everyone. Hey. So that was a very inspiring uh, couple of guests that Yolanda brought on talking about uh, a lot of a range of things. There was a man who gave, I think it was half a million hugs around the world <laughs> on bikes, among a lot of other things. So Don, I invited Aram on because he came on Twitter and was talking about Kawenga Pass, which is a stretch of road we've talked about on the show. I just thought we could continue with that. And Aram, I invited a couple people on in a couple minutes. So can we can we just give your your pitch for Kawenga Pass and why we need it? Yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a road that I ride pretty much every day. So I'm intimately familiar with you know the good parts, the bad parts, uh, and I think like we discussed on Twitter, uh, you know, or private messaging, I think. Uh, there's like the pipe dream of, you know, 20 years from now. And then there's, I think there's a few things that can be done short term to make it less intimidating, especially for novice cyclists. Like right now, I would say it's, uh, you know, advanced level commuting. So, and I would say if I do 20 rides, I might see one or two others commuting and considering how many people go back and forth between the Valley and, uh, 
you know, the Hollywood corridor, uh, you would think that number would be much higher, but people don't want to die. Um, so I don't know. Uh, have can you, you describe? Been? Yeah. Can you describe the road? I think Don and Joe have. Don, Don knows it pretty well. Uh, Do we you know Joe? I don't, I don't think Joe we've met, but hello. But Joe, uh, everybody. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I haven't had any incidents. Hey, uh, yeah. hey, Joe, this is Joe Linton from Streets Blog. We got him on here. Yeah. And Aram, you're, you have been, I know you. Yeah. <laughs> We've done a yeah. lot of rides together. We've known Don um, a long time. But describe yeah, so Coenga for So, yeah, Coenga is basically, for me, I, I work on fountains. So as soon as you turn right on fountain, the road starts coming up. Uh, pretty much until the the top of the pass. And uh, as soon as you turn right on Coenga, you know, you're dealing with, until you're past Franklin, it's, you know, car doors opening, just the usual stuff that we're used to. But then after that, you actually have a pretty nice bike lane. It's, I've never really had any problems. But after it kind of meanders and you pass the Hollywood Bowl area, the bike lane disappears, the pavement gets really bad. And there's this one section, Don, I'm sure you know it, like it, it, the road creeps up pretty steep. And so you're losing speed. And then you also have these storm grates that will swallow your tires if you run over them. So you're, you have to go to the left. Uh, and I think yeah, that's, that section is um, really so bad. So Coenga right? North, yeah. when you yeah, go north of, of, uh, of the Hollywood Bowl, it, the road curves right and becomes like a three lane north and one lane south and it basically feeds the one yeah yeah exactly right before the one-on-one entrance north and, and uh, i've been i ride this thing every day and i haven't really had any incidents to report but yesterday and the city's kind of notorious I yeah think. But I was going to say yesterday I got buzzed by a guy in a BMW who was oblivious. Like, uh, you know, luckily nothing happened. But I was like, holy shit, um, excuse me, but I, tomorrow this is something to bring up. Uh, but I don't know. What do you think they can do there in the short term, Don? Like, put a, I don't know. There's a reason why the bike lane doesn't continue there, I'm assuming. But Tell them your hamster cage idea, <laughs> The hamster cage, uh, uh, Don. I think you've you've ridden the Brook uh, Williamsburg Bridge in uh, New York. I have. Yeah. yeah. When I first rode it, maybe eight or nine years ago, like it was the most whimsical, magical thing. I could not believe that there could be something like this that exists for cyclists. And I don't know when it was built, that bike section, but. Uh, I'm sure there was a lot of advocacy and meetings and money and stuff changing hands, but I envisioned on something like that for the Coenga Pass one day. I think it would, it's just as long. I mean, the Williamsburg Bridge is almost a mile, I think. Uh, I think, up, um, it goes down. I uh, think some, some elevated platform kind of thing, I think would be magical uh, and safe. And <laughs> it would really get I think used Joe, to Joe could uh, speak to this. It seems like the, the big issue there is that they're, they're funneling cars onto the freeway and whenever there's a freeway exit or entrance, it seems like the city of Los Angeles uh, refuses to do anything to get bikes through or consider bikes. Don't you think Joe's there's some kind of, it seems yeah. like there's some kind of policy that they bike lanes will end before, you know, 
a quarter mile before a freeway entrance or exit. That's why they do that. Weird. Okay. Well, there's also um, Caltrans will get in the way of your bike project. You know, they they basically have these, you know, books in the <laughs> in the Caltrans offices that all say like that. You know, the ultimate freeway on the 101 through the Cuenca Pass is you know 126 lanes, and so oh, they yeah. won't let DOT build anything anywhere near it because someday they might want to widen it a couple more times. So there's the cities have to kind of back off with any kind of infrastructure anywhere near freeways um, because Caltrans, because you know. The, does, does Caltrans uh, own the land? Covered, oh, well, all of California should be covered with freeways. They have enough money. Does, does, enough time. does Caltrans actually own the 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 like the road that's adjacent to freeways? Like they, that's how they. Well, no. What they do is they condemn it and they buy it. You know what they're doing in in South LA, well, Southeast LA, toward the Orange County line on the five and through Glendale, they just go in and they evict and, and uh, you know, buy up land when they want to widen it. So they, they own the land typically under the freeway itself. Um, but they, when they decide that they're going to do a widening project, they go in and, you know, kick out poor black and brown people typically that live near freeways. But I mean, through the Quinga Pass, that's not the case, but it's, um, uh it's pretty hard for the city to do i mean they can do bike lanes potentially on you know Coenga, um you know within that's a city right of way on the on the street itself um yeah but uh but y you it's pretty hard to build something like when i hear that williamsburg bridge stuff um it's pretty hard to build any kind of structure anywhere near a freeway in California because Caltrans vetoes it on the basis of future widening. Yeah, but I imagine building on that bridge was also, there was a ton of red tape and it was probably really difficult and, you know, it got done. So I, I don't know. I'm not yeah. totally hopeless. But what about Joe short term? Is there something that, you know, can they at least like make those storm breaks like in a, a different style so they don't swallow? Yeah. So here's. Up? They, the city has new um, storm drain grades, I should say new, they're about a decade ago, um, that are uh, ideally, you know, they should be perpendicular to the direction of bicycle yeah. travel, but these are still parallel to the direction of travel, but they've, they've closed the space up somewhat in between them. And so um, the, I think the thing to do would be to, you know, take pictures of it, put them all over exactly. social media, say this is right. a this is a lawsuit waiting to happen. And um, I'm not sure what who the council member is there. Probably David Rue or um, there's from today's uh, ride. It's just yeah. like perfect width of a of a road bike tire. Like yeah. So what I would do is put is on stick the your tire in there and take a picture of it and just say just start getting the narrative out there that this is a this is a, you know, lawsuit Man. waiting to happen. Anytime um, I'm writing that section, I'm, I'm trying to get out as soon as I can. Like, uh, it's not really, maybe early in the morning, we could take a photo op or something, but uh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I wonder too, if there's a way to like, 
divert bicycle traffic through the, the Ford Theater parking lot and then dump us back out where the bike lane continues. Because there's like, there's basically just a parking lot adjacent to it, you know. Um, I don't know. I, oh, so it's not far down. It's not further. It's it's below. It's below the John Anson Ford Theater. Yes, it's it's oh. it's at the bottom of that little hill there. Yeah, that's that's the yeah. suspect uh, area. So, I mean, yeah. that's that's theoretically possible. It'd be I amazing. Know who owns? Is that city owned? Is that owned by the Philharmonic? Or I wonder who I owns know. that parking lot? I mean, the the question becomes when there's a concert and the parking lot's filling up, you yeah. know, then does the city get sued for the bikes going in the regular way? I but I mean, um, I, I would get the narrative, I would start by getting the narrative out there that it's super dangerous the way it is right now and somebody's gonna get sued. And then sometimes the city will go out and take a look at it and see what they can what they can do. I mean, I think what, here's the, here's the, Here's my two cents on. I think a lot of, I think experienced bicyclists do the Koenga Pass, um, but uh, it's it's too hilly for most beginners and stuff like that. So I think people avoid it. And if they, you know, you can take the train or um, drive potentially. Uh, so I think a lot of I think you don't get novice cyclists up there so i think it's hard to justify whatever it's sort of it's that bad thing where it's like oh we're not going to build a bridge unless enough people are swimming across <laughs> whatever i mean it's like yeah. but, but i feel like the numbers the numbers on that street even though it's kind of the only one of the only ways to get from the the from hollywood to the valley um from the basin to the valley um it still doesn't have i mean probably because it's not safe, but also because it's hilly. Um, it just doesn't have that much bicycle traffic. Um, that's that's a gnarly corridor. That corridor is gnarly, and the pavement there sucks. And when they squeeze in oh, they fix three, the pavement. three lanes, did they the fix it? But they squeeze in like three lanes right there on that curve. It's insane. Yeah. Aram, I mean, you're like a warrior cyclist, so I yeah, could see you getting through there. But I mean, it's, an, it's a seven-minute hill. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not bad if there's no traffic, but it's. I mean, you can walk from the bottom to the top in less than 20 minutes. I think if you're walking, but. Well, I mean, Aram, thank you to, for okay. coming on. I used to ride that Joe. a lot in my 20s. In my 50s, I, I almost never ride it. Whatever, I ride it a couple times a year. <laughs> I'm glad we had a chance to to get this out with Joe and Michael McDonald here and Don and Aram. I hope thank you. Uh, I hope you feel well heard. Sorry, I hope I wasn't too negative. On, I, I, go, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> All right, Aaron, thanks for coming on right. the show. Thanks, guys. Bye. It's good to see you, man. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, right, so, we're going to bring on Michael McDonald. So the, the reason, Don, you know why Joe and Michael are here? Did we get that far with the, with the planning? Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, Union Station. Great. And how they're, they're watering down uh, pedestrian improvements right guys yeah um yeah, it's even worse than that though. <laughs> go ahead michael <laughs> i'm trying not uh, to be cynical yeah so um I, I don't know if people read joe's article if you haven't read it on streets blog la i totally recommend it it's a great review of this project um this project is called the alameda sorry the union station forecourt and alameda esplanade project um 
it has uh, been a long time in the making. I would say at least goes back five years. I think that if you include uh, the Union Station ma master plan, it probably can track it back to like 2011 or so, but um, it really got going in 2017 with the start of an EIR. Um, and the project um, basically tries to improve the access to Union Station um, and the connection between Union Station and El Pueblo, uh, Olvera Street, um, and for people who are getting there by all modes, but especially pedestrians and people on bikes. Um, I got involved in looking at this project in 2017 because when it first came out, I was super alarmed because it was, um, so this is where Los Angeles Street kind of like comes into Union Station. And I think it was around 2015, 2016, uh, the city put uh, those protected bike lanes in on Los Angeles Street. Um, but it had happened after the EIR process started for this project. And so this project was like the first draft of it was going to tear out those bike lanes because it just, it didn't acknowledge what had, you know, how the process had gone. And so um, I had been, you know, tracking through and working with the, I, I submitted comments and I uh, did a lot of engagement with the Metro team that's been running this. And they were really receptive and uh, listened and, and, you know, wanted to make the project better. And they actually put in a two-way uh, cycle track uh, that would, connect the dots between those bike lanes that are all, the protected bike lanes that are already there on Los Angeles street and connect them into Union station. And then part of the project was also supposed to have two way bikeways on Alameda. Um, but the latest round that has just come out, um, it's just been really watered down. And unfortunately this is not the first time this project has been watered down. If you look at like the original, <laughs> Uh, renderings that Joe had put in the article back in 2015 that, um, you know, that it was really a grand uh, kind of vision for how this was going to be, I would say much more like a, you know, Central American, South American kind of like train station city or European train station where one comes out of a train station and it's immediately a pedestrian friendly, transit friendly environment. Um, and uh, in the latest round as Metro has been trying to uh, move into construction of the project, various departments at the city of Los Angeles have uh, raised alarms and vetoed uh, certain key aspects of the project. So one of the ones that I think is the most like um, obvious is uh, Streets LA, the Bureau of uh, Street Services has said that if Metro is to put in, the, so the Alameda Esplanade portion of the project on Alameda it expands the sidewalk and the idea is that you provide a lot more tree cover, a lot more shade. So it's actually a comfortable place. We're here in the Southern California climate. I mean, it's what, like 120 degrees out today. One can actually survive. And so they were putting in a double row of trees on that expanded sidewalk and, you know, covering the entire sidewalk so that midday you get shade. Well, the Bureau of Street Services has said that, um, if Metro wants to do that, they need to tear out and replace the uh, storm drain line that runs there. Now, the, you know, that, it, that's an expensive thing just overall. I work in, you know, like the architectural field. So I know that that's like expensive when you're tearing out major utilities, but it's even more expensive when you think about where this is, because basically at this location of Union Station and Olvera Street, it's like an archae archeological minefield under there. 
And so they're really hesitant to put anything in there that's going to require them to dig out uh, underneath because they know that as soon as they hit something of archaeological significance, the entire project goes on hold, the costs go up. So just by suggesting this, Streets Services has basically made it impossible for them to put uh, a lot of trees in in front of Union Station. Uh, so it would really just like ruin the pedestrian experience. On top of that, the Department of Transportation is objected to two things, both of which uh, I think really, really bring down the quality of the project and the reason for even doing the project in the first place. One is, so this connection between Union Station and Alvera Street at Pueblo um, was supposed to be like this expansion of the sidewalk, that if there was a raised crossing that was super wide that basically felt like, okay, I'm on the sidewalk, I continue on the sidewalk, it's all like a pedestrian area. And uh, DOT has said that that can't be flush with the sidewalk They've said it needs to reduce in height by 62% and um, make it so that it's, it's not as wide. It went from 50 feet wide to being 37 feet wide. Um, but like, it's just not going to slow down drivers as much anymore, as well as be ADA accessible, be a comfortable, like, you know, a vision of what a much more, you know, a pedestrian friendly street might be. What was LADOT's reasoning for not uh, making the crossing at grade with the sidewalk? I love this. Non-standard. They, ha they have to a say, we need to put more and more drivers through the middle of Los Angeles, you know, and not, and, and not, you know, not prioritize pedestrians in, in an area that's, you know, the, the, the region's main transit hub, the historical walkable center of Los Angeles, jump in and do it because, uh, but the, the city had agreed two years ago to eliminating left turns, which would give the pedestrians plenty of time to cross without any um, traffic, you know, without any drivers jamming down on them and then in as as the city was finishing traffic so it's like dot is insisting on the same car centric crap you know late 20th century uh, you know drivers uber alice <laughs> design in in you know in the middle of los angeles and to me it's depressing it's like if we can't do if we can't favor a pedestrian in front of Union Station. I mean, where in the city can a pedestrian go to be to be safe and have a convenient place to walk? I mean, it's just... I, I'll like piggyback on Joe's statement. Yeah. LADOT is just applying the same standards that they've been applying for the last, you know, 50 years to this very special iconic project. And so some of those standards are, like I was saying, they wrote a standard just recently saying that the highest you could raise the pavement in any place is three inches. So they're not allowing this to be flush with the sidewalk. And then on top of that, like Joe was saying, they're requiring that Metro add a left turn that allows drivers from Los Angeles Street to turn across this raised crossing. And uh, th again, that comes to them saying that, well, it's a standard, we don't let people uh, we don't we on we don't like to have streets that would dead end into private property. 
well, Union Station is like, yes, it's owned by Metro, but calling it private property is kind of silly. It's it just like to apply these standards that have led to Los Angeles being the car centric city that it is. And, you know, even for it, like a, uh, you know, visionary innovative project, it's no wonder that like, you know, LA is where good plans go to die. I mean, it's no wonder that we ended up with the My Figueroa that we have. Like every one of these kind of projects that is supposed to try and like, hey, let's do something different. Let's do something that actually prioritizes people on foot, people on bikes. Um, city departments say, well, we're not used to doing that, so we don't want to change. So it's not a good faith effort on their part, would you say? I'm not going it's to- good faith for drivers. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the people- uh, I, thought, I thought we had new leadership. Like what's driving this inside the department? Is there still old people there that are like, you know, in, in, like, like John Fisher, or was his name Fish, Fisher? That guy, he was John, like the yeah. the shadow, the shadow uh, authority I mean, you're there. About Sean Skihan, right? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, it could, no, John John Fisher was like this guy that, that was, he was like the Darth Vader of of the LADOT that wasn't the uh, general manager, but he was back there. He was an engineer. And isn't, he was high, sorry, highly John influential. Isn't he? Uh, he was, uh, the, he was the, the top engineer. He was the guy yeah. who had to sign so, off. But uh, he wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't the he, general manager. He wasn't he, the leadership. He was on committees. In he he was kind of the power behind the throne. He was the guy right. who was there for so, a time. The so, mayors were the point. People so like what I'm saying is, who is that person now? That's because John John Fisher is gone, and then John Fisher would call the shots for for years. Yeah. So who's that person now that's back there? Because we have Saletta Reynolds, yeah, who's supposed to be it, this it's, wonderful it's person. The, it's lots of bureaucrats and it's lots of engineers who've been there forever and who've got you know got trained under John Fisher, and it's frankly lots of standards in state and federal you know mutcd and all this you know car-centric crap that 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 the the engineers don't they they sit in an office and they you know look at a map and they say hey here's the here's what the car books say we should do and they don't go to they don't walk across alameda in front of the train station and and see that it's one of the most one of the busiest you know pedestrian crossings in the city and it should be, it should be important and should be approached in a way that that values pedestrians. But I don't think it's one person. But I, but I think I think Selena Reynolds got in there, tried to do some good things. You know, got the West Side backlash, and um, and then didn't stop stop doing pushy stuff, and and is doing some good things here and there. But the boxes in house and. Car-centric engineers still calling the shots. Okay. I mean, this sort of stuff happens behind closed doors, so I can only conjecture. I don't know, um, but it just um, it like from the outside, and you know, I may be wrong on this. It just doesn't feel like there's leadership uh, behind these projects that are trying to advocate for kind of goals or that are trying to steer their teams towards um, providing a more pedestrian-friendly or bike-friendly city. It feels like um, you know there's there's people in the room who are uh, trying to uh, adhere to standards and uh, make sure that they 
uh, don't end up, um, you know, uh, being uh, uh, chastised by their bosses or, you know, you know, they don't want to end up with egg on their face. And unless you have somebody in a leadership role who's steering that and saying, no, you know what, guys, here's where we can be innovative. Here's where we, you know, we have the, the ability to, to do something better. Unless you have that person, you're not going to get innovation. Well, don't they have a department of innovation at Metro? I don't understand. <laughs> That's unrelated, <laughs> but yes. So the problem is not, at least from my, it doesn't seem like it's Metro. It's the city of LA departments. It's uh, BSS, which is Streets LA, LADOT, uh, and LA Sanitation. Yeah, uh, at least in this case, Metro, you know, Metro bought Union Station and um, did this master plan in 2015. And uh, Metro's really pushing to say, let's, let's make this a great train station, you know, of our system and, um, you know, anything that's not directly on their property. And, and when they're saying, mother may I to, to city of LA, is that, then city of LA, there are, there, I mean, they're reducing the lane on part of Alameda. There's a couple good things about the project, but, but um, when, when Metro has planned and funded, you know, pushy, good, innovative, you know, innovative in the sense like done everywhere else in the world and not in Los <laughs> but um, innovative stuff. Now we've got DOT saying, no, you can't do it. But I'd say let's, let's, I think we got to wrap up here pretty soon. I do. Um, uh, so the Metro just published this addendum to their EIR, which has their new plan. This stuff's in the article at la.streetsblog.org. Um, People have until August 26th to submit comments on that plan. Um, I would encourage people to get on social media and tag tag the mayor, tag DOT, um, tag uh, Metro, and say you know you really do want this project to prioritize pedestrians and and uh, you know you want leadership from from I think especially from the mayor. Get the the it's in it's in. CD 14, Council District 14, which is currently vacant due to the Huizar scandal. So it's not gonna come from the council office. So it's gonna have to come from the mayor. He sits on the Metro board. He's, you know, Salida Reynolds boss. Um, he, can, he can put a good public, work, public works person on this. He can, he can uh, help steer this into as good a project as it can be. And he's the environmental mayor. He has that incentive to, to live up to, to that. Yeah, I, I, uh, <laughs> I think right, we we'll, need to hold him. You need to give him some backbone. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Joe and Michael for coming on. Um, we'd love to have you guys on again and talk some more uh, about this as it continues. Um, I have one last question. How is Joe's haircut going when everybody else seems to have their COVID non-haircut happening? <laughs> well, I've got my badass COVID goatee kind of, but my my wife my wife cuts my hair, so I, I'm not I'm not missing anything. Uh, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I think this is the longest my hair has ever been. Yeah, I was gonna say we all. I was thinking about that. My hair is getting pretty long too. We're getting helmet hair over here, but Joe somehow 
keeps it crisp. All right. Um, thanks for having us. Thanks, yeah, guys. thanks for coming on, you guys. Thank you. All right, thanks. take care. Come again. Bye-bye. Okay, we're going to do the news with Taranig now. Hi, everyone. I'm Taranig from Have a Go with your weekly bike news. Many bike developments out of Great Britain this week. First, English residents will now have much more control over poorly designed bike infrastructure as well as cut-through traffic, and will see the creation of a new watchdog group that oversees bike and pedestrian paths. Second, Boris Johnson as well as family doctors will start prescribing cycling to help with health-related issues like COVID-19 and obesity. Third, a plan to adopt low-traffic neighborhoods prioritizing walking and cycling in London has accelerated from three years to three weeks, taking advantage of a drop in traffic due to the lockdowns. A new study surveying North American riders found that electric bikes significantly cut local transportation carbon emissions with every e-bike reducing 220 kilograms of CO2 every year. The authors of the study note that, quote, these estimates show that e-bikes have the potential to help cities and regions achieve their climate goals. Additionally, this research can be used to support policies and programs necessary to facilitate the growth of this emerging mode to realize carbon reduction impacts. As the pandemic continues, bicycles are changing the way many Chinese move around, increasingly opting for bike sharing instead of public transport, electrification of bikes and scooters is increasing, and sharing providers are rebalancing their vehicles much more intelligently to match vehicles to areas with high demand. Turkey opens, quote, the world's longest uninterrupted bike path connecting two towns, completing a project that has been on and off again for about 50 years. The path is part of a larger, ambitious strategy of creating a massive network of over 4,000 kilometers of bike lanes by 2023. The new Urban Mobility Alliance released an interesting new tool that lets cities see if their scooter and bike share policies are advancing policy goals. Bogota, Colombia aims for an aggressive long-term goal of having 50% of all trips on micromobility in part by adding 280 kilometers of bike lanes to its already robust 550 kilometer network. And finally, two local news stories. The first comes to us from Scott Epstein and Jenny Morataya. LA's mobility plan includes a network of protected bike lanes, but only a few unconnected segments have been implemented across the city. Now Los Angeles is proposing to apply for grant money from the state to implement 1.5 miles of the plan on Melrose Avenue in the Fairfax District. The project, if funded, would be the first sidewalk-level cycle track in the city, a design found frequently in Europe but rarely in North America. The city is gathering input for this project. To learn more and give your thoughts, you can visit streetsla.lacity.org melrose. And our second local story, a project completed in downtown Los Angeles saw the opening of new bus and bike lanes along 5th and 6th streets. However, of the two stretches in this project, only about half have received bike lanes, likely due to the lack of willingness to remove on-street parking. That's it for this week. You can follow Have A Go on Twitter and Instagram for daily urbanism posts and stories. Thanks for listening. That was the news with Taranay. Thanks for tuning in to Bike Talk. We'll catch you next week. I rise in the morning and greet the day. Pull out the bike and I'm on my way. 
and transportation shows I care. Every turn of the pedal cleans the air. Clean in the green, I'm saving the planet. Just like my friends Daryl, Sean, Toby, and Janet. No greenhouse gas, a tiny carbon footprint up your ass. I'm on a motherfucking bike. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 